one of the most Christocentric passages of one of the most Christocentric um, books of the Bible. Maybe Revelation might be a little beyond Colossians, but Colossians is very Christocentric. And the passage that we're going to look at, which is chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, we won't make it to 20, but I wanted to read it and set it in a context. So elevates Christ that it's kind of, it's stunning to study it and to pray through it and then to proclaim it. And I just pray as a result of our time together that our hearts will be stirred to love Christ greater, to be so, so enamored and so enthralled and so stunned by the grace of God because of the person of Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to look at is going to put forward his preeminence, which is his superiority, his supremacy, and as a result of his supremacy, he is all-sufficient. Um, and so the result will be to look to no one else, to, to trust him for all that I need in my soul, in my mind, as it relates to my relationship to God, my following of God, my pleasing of God. Jesus Christ is all we need. Okay? Um, so, and in the background of Colossians, before we read it, the Apostle Paul is in a Roman prison, and he's, he is writing this letter in response to Epaphras. Epaphras was a man who was probably converted in Ephesus when the Apostle Paul taught there for three years. He went back to his hometown of the Lycus Valley, which is where Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae are, and it's about 100 miles to the west of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. He went back there with the gospel that he was taught by Paul and what he believed and was converted. He took that gospel, evangelized his area, God saved people, planted a church in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Okay? The same Laodicea of the book of Revelation. Okay? About five years after the conversion of Epaphras and the planting of the Colossae church, Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, was taken to Caesarea for a couple of years, and then finally made an appeal to Caesar. So now he's in Rome as a prisoner. Four or five years have passed. Over those five years or so, false teachers have come into the Lycus Valley and are assaulting the, the young church. Okay. Epaphras, the pastor, was so overwhelmed by this attack of false teachers that he made the trip that takes many, many weeks, and it's not an easy trip from middle modern-day Turkey to Rome. Okay? And he went there for one purpose, and that was to ask the Apostle Paul about these heresies, how can we refute it? And so the, the, the letter of Colossians is Paul's response to what Epaphras told him. Okay? And for instance, if you're in chapter 2, Go to verses uh, 2 and 3, just as an example of the heresy that's coming against this church, because it'll make more sense when we then look at our passage as to why Paul wrote what he wrote. In chapter 2, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, the last couple lines, for instance, notice my New American Standard says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Okay? Now, is that close to ESV? That phrase? The last phrase of the second verse of chapter 2? What does your ESV say? Mm -hmm. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Okay, so the emphasis, God's mystery is Christ. Okay, The, we know from further study that the false teachers that are coming against Colossae was teaching a mysterious religion and in order to understand God's mysterious ways you must come to them, you must follow their rules and their teaching and they taught that there were different emanations from God, different beings like angels that came from the presence of God and they came with a message that further illuminated the truth so you had to listen to these angels, you had to listen to these false teachers to get more light, more light that would make you closer to God. 
closer to God. Okay, um, Christ was a nice beginning, but he's not complete. You can't, to them, Christ is just the initiation into the process. And if you're going to go further in your sanctification, in your pleasing of God, in your knowledge of God, you must listen to these different beings that come from God's presence, like angels. Okay, Because in chapter 2, they worshipped angels. Okay? All right. So Christ, Paul says in response, Christ is the mystery of God. He, so then, think of this, that which was not known, mystery, in previous times, has come to revelation, not through the angels, but through the Son. Jesus Christ is the mystery of God. Look at verse 3. In whom, Christ, are hidden some of the treasures, no, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? So you see, Paul's refuting the error of the false teachers that were attacking the sufficiency of Christ with these texts. Christ is the mystery of God. Christ in his person is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to know the wisdom of God, you look to Christ. You don't look to man and their PhDs, right? no matter how well trained they are. Christ is the mystery. He's the revelation of God. He is the storehouse of God's wisdom. He is the storehouse of the knowledge of God. Think about that. In order then to know God, then you must know Christ. So that's what Paul's writing here. Skip down in chapter... Um, look at the next verse 4. Sorry. 2-4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Okay. So he's correcting the persuasive arguments of the false teachers. They sound smart. They sound very godly, like they know. But Paul's writing to correct that. When you get down to verse 8, please, just again to show the attack on the church here. 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, the love of wisdom, and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Christ, you see, is the correction of all these other teachings. Look at verse 9. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form. That's a direct re refutation of the false teaching that said you must have further, further knowledge from greater sources. You must have another angel come, another being come, and give you more light so that you advance. And then another emanation from God to give you more light so you advance. You see, Paul says that all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that's amazing when Solomon dedicated the temple, he says the highest heavens can't even contain you. So the uncontainable, uncircumscribable God indwells and is contained in a sense in the person of Jesus Christ. You see? Now what's the so what of that is part of this letter too, is that's the one in whom we are spiritually united with. When you believe the Spirit supernaturally, miraculously, you didn't feel it, you just know it from Scripture, united you to this one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay? Now, what's the result of that? Look at the next verse, 10. And in him you have been made complete. And look at the tense of the verb there in verse 10. You have been made complete. It's not present tense in the sense that you're, you are being made complete. It's not future tense as though it's a promise that someday you will be made complete. It is a fact. Is it's already happened. In fact, it's, a, it's what's known as a perfect passive. Perfect means past act that's fully completed with ongoing finished results. Passive means it was done to you. 
Okay? So they had no part in this. It was done for them in the person of Jesus Christ. They stand. So the moment you were converted, the moment you were converted, you were, you were united with this Jesus Christ in whom all the fullness of God dwells. And by virtue of that spiritual union, you have been made complete. So there's no deficiency. You see, the attack on Christ in the book of Colossians was that Christ is not the supreme being. Therefore, he has some deficiencies. He gets you in the door. He just can't finish the deal. Paul writes to show that is ridiculous. Okay? Now, in modern day, think of all the, think of all the things that, that Christianity adds on to Christ, adds on to the gospel. Right? Think of Christian so-called Christian psychiatry, Christian uh, psychology, right? Um, that integrates worldly stuff with biblical stuff. Right? Why is that crucial? Because when they clash, what trumps is authoritative, not the scripture. It's what I learned at Stanford in my PhD, yeah. right? Which comes from a faulty source, right? It comes from the world. The unconverted world is going to tell Christians how to please God. That's ridiculous. And Christ is not sufficient. The gospel is not sufficient. You need me. You need a guru. You need more information. You need more enlightenment, you see, to walk and to please God. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's just what's happening in Colossians. And so this is a modern-day issue. Okay? The answer to all heresy is Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to know all of the details of a heresy. We just need to know Jesus Christ. So be convinced, be, be encouraged, right? That you're united to the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. And as a result of that, you are complete. And you keep looking to him, the one who's all sufficient. Okay? All right. Now, all that to say, <laughs> go back to chapter 1. Because Paul's going to begin here in verse 15 down to 20 to show the supremacy of Jesus Christ to all beings because he is Lord of creation. He is God. Okay? And we're going to see his relationship to God in verse 15. And we're going to see his relationship to creation. All which are evidences of his preeminence. Okay? And why we should trust him. And not deviate away from him. Especially today. The more precious today. The more assaults. Stay the course by following this Jesus. He is sufficient for all we need. So look at 15 through 20. Again, we're not going to make it to verse 20. But I want you to see the paragraph. He is the image, says the NES, of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure... For all the fullness to dwell in him. Finally in 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth. Or things in heaven. 15 through 17. He's the Lord of creation. 18 through 20. He is the Lord of the church. We're going to focus on 15 through 17 today. But he begins in verse 15, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ is seen in his relationship to God. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay? Now, obviously, the invisible God is, is the true God. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of the Bible. Scripture tells us that he is many times unseeable. He's unknowable. Okay? He, is, he is shrouded, if you will. Um, from the human eye. No one has seen God at any time. 
any any uh, theophany of the Old Testament, any any revelation of God, like Moses in the cleft of the rock, God even said, "You can't see my face, but I'll show you my backside." No one has seen a full, uncloaked vision of God except the Son, okay? except Jesus Christ. He is okay. Verse fifteen. He is the image of the invisible. So the, the, the God who cannot be seen, this one is the image. The word is icon, or where we get icon from. Um, when in Matthew 22, they had a coin, and Jesus asked, well, whose likeness is on that coin? It was Caesar, right? And it used the same word. Who's, whose icon is this? That's Caesar's. The Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translating of the Hebrew, uses this same word for image here in Genesis 1 when it's translating the, the creation of man where Adam was made in the image of God in the icon of God okay um, in the image of God but this one here the emphasis is he, he is presently continually always for a fact the image of God so the invisible God is brought to light through the Son. The invisible God must make himself known in order for us to see him. And he's chosen the means by which to do that. And that is his Son. And remember in the Colossian heresies, you, in order to know God, you needed angels or further emanations to tell you. And you needed these gurus raised up in this mysterious religion to give you more light. Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hold your finger here and go to John chapter 1, please. And I know we know all these things. These are very familiar doctrines for us if we've been in the church in any length of time. But it's so good to remember these things. This is, this is our Lord. He has not changed Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So obviously you have in the beginning, wherever you want to put in the beginning, already existing was what is identified in verse 1 as the Word. And the Word was with God. So you have two, right? You have fellowship there with God, face to face. And the Word was God, which I can't explain that, I just believe it. Right? Now this one who is God, the Word who is God, in verse 1, look at verse 14. And the Word, that very same Word, became flesh. So the one who has always in the beginning was already existing and is God, verse 14 then says this, that the Word who is God became flesh, took on meat, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. What kind of glory? Well, the glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay? So Jesus Christ, God in flesh, dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, verse 14. We saw, we gazed, we actually gazed upon his glory, his perfections. The perfections that belong to the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip over sake of time, order verse 18, please. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who's mentioned in verse 14, who is in the bosom of the Father, what does your text say? He has explained him. That's the same as the image, okay? You know, we were watching a show from Britain the other day, and how, what a strange tradition, how they pose like after dinner, right? They all dress up for dinner, and they sit around and they pose, you know. That's not what Jesus did when he came as the image of God. <laughs> he came to exegete. He came to explain. The word in verse 18, explained him, is from the word where we get exegesis from. Okay, now get this. Doesn't it make sense? The God who's never been seen has been seen by the one who's explaining him. You see? How cool is that? 
Jesus Christ is the image of God, the invisible God, and he came to explain him. He came to exegete him. He came to tell you about him. And so much so, not only tell him about him, but to manifest him. So much so that John told, or Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to gaze upon the Son in his flesh, Jesus says, is, is actually to gaze upon the Father, the invisible God. So if you're going to know the true God, you must know the Son. Not other angels. You don't worship angels. You don't worship great dead saints. You don't rub beads. You don't do any of that stuff. You look to Christ. Now, He's not here amongst us. He's not walking with us. He's not talking to us, having fellowship in our meetings. How do we then benefit from what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ? That's great, Paul. Jesus is the image of God. Wonderful, right? But think about this. Isn't he writing to the Colossians? And it's about 61 AD when he writes it, so it's like 25 years after Jesus Christ ascended to glory, and he's saying to them, don't be misled. The one you're to follow is Jesus Christ. How are we to follow Jesus Christ if he's not actually here in flesh? It's through the scriptures. Here's... Here is the objective, non-subjective, revelation, self-disclosure of the invisible God and of his Son. Isn't this where we learn of him? This is where we see his, his, his details. This is where we see his glory from the scriptures. You don't go up on a hill under an oak tree and hum and learn about Jesus. No, because your impressions, I'll guarantee you, will be wrong. There might be an element of truth in it, but it'll be wrong. How many Sunday schools do you go in, and on the, on the wall is a so-called painting of Jesus? And he looks like he's from Norway, right? He ain't Norwegian. He's not Ruski. He's not Oki. He's Jewish, right? He's Jewish. Um, so how do we even know what he looks like? You see, my point is... The only, it doesn't matter what he looks like physically. How we know him, how we see him, how the invisible God is made known is to look to his son, the son that is explained on the pages of scripture. This is all we need. So the sufficiency of Jesus is directly correlated to the sufficiency of the scriptures. You don't need any other book. The only way to measure the goodness of a book is how it helps you to understand the text. That's a good book. All the rest is hearsay. Right? Hearsay. So, back to Colossians, please. Paul is writing this to prevent these Christians from going astray. It's interesting. False teachers are, are assaulting the church ever since the first century. They're assaulting it now. And they will until Jesus makes all things right. Okay? There will always be false teachers. They, they attack the person of Jesus, his deity or his humanity. There's heresies on both sides of that. They deny his full humanity. They deny his full deity. They deny his sufficiency and his atonement. His atonement. They, do, they deny his full capacity to take on the sins of the world. They deny his resurrection, literal bodily resurrection, and all in between. Right? They deny that. They reject that. They attack Christ. The answer is the truth of Christ. Okay. Now, in Colossians here, in verse 15, the preeminence of Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. He's equal with God. He is, he is the same as God in the sense that he is the image. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the exact representation. The exact representation of God is Jesus Christ. You and I are made in the image of God. Sin has scarred that. But we were never the exact representation of God. 
But Jesus is the exact representation of God. And in order to be an exact representation, you must be equal. Jesus is equal with God. Okay? I and the Father are one, he says many times. Um, verse 15, please look at the next. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation. And you'll notice in verse 15, in verse 16, in verse 17, the repetition of the word all. Paul is, is just splattering his paragraph with all. All creation, verse 15. Verse 16, all things were created. The end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is obviously making a point. That there is nothing excluded from the supremacy of Christ. There's, there is nothing excluded from his reign and rule. In other words, he, it's all inclusive. Everything that is not God is under the feet of Jesus. Okay? He says he's the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, prototokos, is a, a term that can mean... Firstborn in a sequence. Luke 2 7, it said that Mary gave birth to her firstborn, Jesus. Okay? So it can mean that. But it, it more has the idea, and certainly in this context, it has the idea firstborn is the one of privilege, of position. He's, he is the, the son of privilege, the son of inheritance. He's the heir. He's the firstborn of creation. Je Jehovah Witnesses want to tell you this text is telling you, there you go. He is the first thing created. As though creation pre-existed Jesus. The Son, let's put it that way. The cult would say creation existed because God the Father created. And after God the Father created, he then created this being as the Son. Jesus and Jehovah Witness, Arian, other cults, is not deity. Okay? He's basically comparable to, to Michael the Archangel. Mormons say he's a brother, half-brother to Satan, Lucifer. Right? But this is saying that he is the firstborn in the sense that he is the heir of all creation. Okay? Not created. He's the heir. Now how can we be sure of that? Look at the next verse. For by him all things were created. <laughs> he's prototokos of creation is not saying he's created himself. He is the heir of all creation. Why? Because verse 16, he created all things. You see? All right. For by him, he's the instrument. The Trinity is involved in creation from other passages. Verse 16 is saying that Jesus, the Son, of God here is the instrument by which God the Father created. Okay? And notice verse 16. For by him, Jesus Christ, the firstborn, all things were created. Just says it point blank. And notice the realm. Notice the extent of his creation. Both in the heavens and on the earth. Visible and invisible. Those are, those are the boundaries of his territory. The heavens and the earth, that which you can see and that which you can't see. If it is created, he created it. Okay? Therefore, he is the heir over all of that. He's the top-ranked one. Okay? There are no other emanations, no other beings you need to get to know God. Because Jesus is the heir of all creation. Doesn't Romans 8 say, different contexts, but it says that the children of God are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Right? The Son has had everything bequeathed to him by the Father. It is his by right. He is the prototokos. All creation belongs to Jesus and he's the heir. And then he goes further, right? Look at the realm. goes beyond the visible and invisible. And then he goes to authorities in verse 16. And he does this because the false teaching of the day was saying Jesus is not a high enough ranking official. 
He's one of many, but he's not the highest. But Paul says, well, contrary, dear friend, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, powers, those are all angelic, earthly, heavenly and earthly, wherever you want to say, those powers have been created by Jesus Christ and are under his realm. And then he goes on to say even further in verse 16, he says, all things have been created. And the way the tense of that is, it's, looks, it's looking backward into Genesis. Everything is completely done. It's finished. Creation is done. Okay? Back in Genesis chapter 1, then Jesus or God looked and said, everything he created is very good. It's very good. And he rested on the seventh day. He says back in Genesis. This is what the end of verse 16 is saying. All things have been created. They, they've been done. It's finished. Notice, through him. In the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him. Jesus Christ is the channel by which all things have come into existence. Okay? Um, hold your finger here. Can I show you back in John 1? And at least by looking at these different passages, you can see that the deity of Christ and his supremacy is not some obscure doctrine. Right? It is the theme of the Bible. Look at chapter 1 of John, verse, um, how about if we read 1 through 3 for the context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things came into being. Through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's a pretty uh, thorough statement by this fisherman named John, moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the channel by the means by which all things have come into existence. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. So he is equal to God. He is God. He is, he is the, the, the exegete of God. He explains God. Verse 15, back in Colossians. He's the firstborn. He's the heir of all creation. Why is that? Because, verse 16, he is the creator of all things. Therefore, they are his by right. Okay? He's talking about Jesus Christ. I know familiarity can breed contempt. And these doctrines can become so familiar that it loses its power. We don't want to be that way. Pray that this is fresh. Think about the person that we call Jesus Christ, the person that hung on that cross to pay for my sins, is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He has always existed in the form of God, Philippians 2, 6 always existed equal with God in nature, but came under, the Father sent him and he came as the image of God, the explainer of God, and he is the creator of all things hanging there on the tree so that his creation is putting him to death. Right? Um, look at the, again, look at 16. He goes further. In, at the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him, so he's the channel. And then look where it finishes in verse 16. What does your NAS say at the end of verse 16? Anybody? For him? What does that mean? Everything was created with the goal of him. He's the teleos. He's, he's the... He's the He's the point of the spear. Creation's goal, creation's purpose is not for you and me. It's for him. Right? It's so that he would be made much of. So that he would be praised. So that he would have an earthly territory. The millennial kingdom is but a picture of why God created anything in the first place. It was that his son would reign as king and be the firstborn among many brethren in 829 of Romans. God created everything. Jesus created everything that it might praise him. Our psalm that we read, 148, praise him angels, praise him 
sky. Praise him, animals. Praise him, virgins and kings. Everybody, everything is to praise him. Other psalms says everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. Well, this text is saying not only is it to praise the Lord, more specifically, it is to praise the Son. It's to praise the Son. All creatures have been created to glorify the Son, including me. I have a purpose. And that's to glorify Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we're here for? We're here to promote the fame of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's why he created. You know what? If that's our goal, the Holy Spirit, we're in harmony with the Holy Spirit, he will empower us for that purpose. Right? And so Paul, in, in writing this, is, is elevating Jesus Christ because he and showing that he is the preeminent one. Christ is the preeminent. He's equal with God. And not only that, his relationship to creation is he is the heir of all that has been created. And all that's been created has not only been created through him and that he is the channel by which it all happened, he is the goal for which it was created in the first place. Well, it's really cool. And Go to 1 Corinthians. Please. 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 and pick it up in verse 23 this is the order of resurrection here and it's obviously the, the great chapter on resurrection verse 23 says but each in his own order Christ the first fruits of resurrection after that those are Christ at his coming verse 24 then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule, all authority and power. He must then reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, verse 27. But he who says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So all things are under the feet of the preeminent prototokos, Jesus Christ, except God the Father, who's the one who said all things will be subject to the Son. The Son, at the end, will take everything that the Father gave him and hand it back to God the Father, so that God the Father is all in all. So in a Trinitarian stuff, we're all caught up in this. And so that's why false teaching comes, attacks the person of Jesus, attacks the gospel, attacks the sufficiency of scriptures, sufficiency of the gospel, sufficiency of Christ, so that we're all diverted off from, for what God created and saved us for. He created us for his glory. Sin came and diminished that and diverted that and destroyed that. Redemption, reconciliation, salvation comes and restores that. And now, as redeemed creatures, we can live in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. And so, this is what, back to Colossians, and I'll leave you be here soon. So that's where Paul begins here in this chapter. As he lays out the supremacy of the Son... equal with God. He's the heir of all creation. And finally in verse 17, he keeps going. He just keeps burned down, does Paul. And he says in verse 17, he is before all things. He doesn't need to say that. This is like a reiteration, right? Of course he's before all things. He's the prototokos. He's the heir. He's, he's the image of God. But here he says it explicitly. That which was implicit, he now says explicitly. In verse 17, he is before all things. He exists before all things. Here he's emphasizing, verse 17, that Jesus is preexistent. He preexists pre everything. Okay? And again, it's all things. This speaks of his eternality. Didn't he say in Revelation he's the Alpha and the Omega? 
He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Nothing has existed before the Son because nothing has existed before God. This speaks of his eternality. He's eternal. You know what that's saying? That nothing, there's never been a time when the Son has existed. There's never been a time when, when the Son, I say, don't say Jesus because that name was given to him in his incarnation. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, there's never been a time when he has not existed. He's always existed. It's amazing to me. A mere mortal has a hard time with eternal. I mean, my, my, my brain starts to expand and it's kind of cool, and then it becomes painful. <laughs> and then it just kind of shuts down. <laughs> like, I can't go there. So wherever that is for you, right? Before that is Jesus, the Son, God, the triune God. Okay, verse 17, not only does he speak of his preexistence there, he's, his preeminence is because he's preexistent. And then notice, that's so cool. And in him, all things hold together. All of creation is cohesive, is, 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 is standing up in rigidity, if you will, the term here, in the person of Christ. In other words, it's not imploding, it's not free-reigning, it's not spinning out of control because in him, he sustains it. Hebrews, so that this tense of verb here is having done it once and for all and it stays in that condition. The book of Hebrews says, by the word of his power, he upholds everything and it's present tense, okay? So the emphasis of Hebrews, speaking about the same idea, Okay, is that presently Jesus is speaking, go forward, stay, stay put, stay together until I tell you differently. This is saying I've said it once and it's going to continue until I say differently. Okay? So in the person of Christ, think of this, in the person of Christ, all of creation is held together like a band. So the God who cannot be circumscribed is the one who circumscribes all of creation. And this is Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, until he says, and it's coming, let the skies be rolled up like a scroll. And let the stars fall like, like late figs that are overripe. Let the water turn to blood. 2 Peter 3 talks about the elements will melt with fervent heat. Why will it do that? Because Jesus will say so. The one who's the prototokos, the one who's the heir of all creation, for which everything was created, will say, okay, now it's time for your renewal. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And isn't it amazing that this is where Paul starts to correct this heresy that the preeminent one is Jesus Christ. This preeminent one that he's emphasizing here, that he's calling their attention to gaze upon him, he's calling us to the same. Be reminded of how great this person is. This is the person who took your sins upon himself and hung on the cross. This is the person that paid the debt. This is the person who was buried and raised on the third day on your behalf. So that by faith in him, you are justified. No more condemnation. You cannot be separated from this God. You cannot be ripped out of his hands. You can't jump out. Nobody can take you out. This because of who he is. He reigns supreme over all creation, including the devil. And as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. This is elevating Christ above all powers, all angelic beings, all earthly powers, 
all nuclear powers, right? Think of all the stuff that he's, that, think of all the things, that the, the intricate, delicate things that must stay balanced for life to continue. It's because Jesus Christ says so. Because Jesus Christ upholds it. Why would I go to anybody else? Why would I go to anything else to know about God, to love God, to please God? Why would I go to anywhere else? Why would I go to any worldly thing? And the church is called together to elevate, to extol, to praise this one who's so glorious. Let us be taken up with him. This is why we will close in Revelation. I'm, ten, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, we'll read the whole chapter because it's worth it. Okay, because this has to do with his right of heirship. Because in verse one, right, of chapter five of Revelation, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God. In context, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. That way it covers every aspect of creation. Who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able, had the power to open the book or look into it. Nobody was found. Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, <laughs> sounds like my mom, knock it off. Stop crying. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He's the conqueror. And notice the Davidic connection, the Davidic covenant connection, the root, which is awesome. Not the offspring, but the root. He's the cause. He's the originator of David. Okay. Verse 6. And I saw between the throne the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. That word slain is graphic. It talks about the slitting of the throat, literally. A lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You know why? Because he's the only one worthy. This is the prototokos of God. Verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, what did they do? Fell down. Before the Lamb, each one holding a harp of golden bulls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Presently, continually, constantly, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain, you were slaughtered, and purchased by ransom for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice singular of many angels, plural, around the throne and living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice singular, Worthy is the Lamb. This is in the presence of God. God's on the throne. And they're singing, worthy is the Lamb. You don't do that unless the Lamb is worthy as God. That would be idolatry to worship something, anybody other than God. But yet here they are in the presence of God, lifting up, extolling the Lamb. With one voice, all the creatures of heaven, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing, remember, he created every created thing, which is in the heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all of them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, 
equality there. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying in response, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the reason, remember we read, all creation was created for him. This is fulfilling this for him. All creatures gathered around the throne, praising the Lamb. Praising the Lamb. Because he's worthy. He's as worthy of the praise as God the Father. Because he is God. He's the image of God. Right? Is he your God? Is he your Savior? Now I say that because I just, how I'm wired. All right? Where, 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 how should that impact my life? If this is our God, if the, if, if the goal of creation is this, right? Let us in the power of the Spirit fulfill that for which we were created and redeemed. And that's to worship Christ, to make him known. Speak of his glory, speak of his praise. The second Peter, first Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him. Let us exist to promote the fame of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Amen. Amen. I hate quitting, but I better. We'll pray and then we'll sing a song again. Well, Lord, I do thank you. I pray you'll use this attempt to exalt you, to edify your people, unite us in the worship of you. Perfect us, Lord. Continue to perfect us. Stir our hearts to love your Son as you love your Son. Stir our hearts to see him worthy as all creation sees him as worthy. What a privilege to serve him, to know him, to worship him. We give him the glory and the praise for you are worthy.